Okay, welcome, welcome to another live edition, rather, rather, another edition of What's Left in Albany. Welcome to What's Left in Albany. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region, featuring discussions with leaders of communities or organizations to discuss themselves, local issues, as well as their projects, in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, promoting the build-out of a solidarity economy and delegative democracy, waging my one-man clandestine insurgency against confusion in our post-liberal status quo, as we cannot hope to change our conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for this city, we are going to find whatever is left. I'm going to begin the episode. This, today's... I was inspired. I've had a piece of content in the bank for a long time, even since Three Lefts, which was just a year ago. But still, you know, no no particular episode theme to go with. But I've been holding it off too long. Is more and more, you'll probably find, if not you haven't heard it uh, hundreds of times already, kind of talking points by what are usually called, uh, by people in political science, technocrats. This is kind of the, what I'm, when I, I, I use in my intro, I'm always testing new phrases to use, post-liberal, which is this assumption that liberal rights and values are a little outdated, that the latest science and tech kind of makes all of that outdated, or rather it's been something of a trend for the last uh, few generations to call into question human competency almost. You know, every time, I mean, it's, it's not just recently, of course. If you go back to certain theologies, you know, we're all born sinners. There's something wrong with us. We're, from the get-go, there's original sin, and we have to earn our way into being moral or into uh, salvation, as it were to use their terms. Likewise, um, in democratic or just American politics, and by Democrat I mean Democratic Party, everyone is kind of just not good enough for democracy. You know, there's always a, a tendency, even most educated friends of mine, to eventually devolve into everyone else is just stupid. There's something wrong with them. 
We have to intervene somewhere, usually in education. Anytime the talking point is we, it starts in the home. It starts with education, with the children, the children of the future. What about the 30-year-olds? What about the 40-year-olds? Are they not the future, the future of the next 30 years? Are we giving up on them because they're alcoholic or because they have pre-existing conditions or they didn't get that college degree because it was, wasn't affordable at the time for them? No Pell Grants. Uh, and then they have to pay the bills so they can't go back to school unless it's free or paid for or their expenses are covered. All these things that other civilized countries could or can do, social democracy can do. But we don't. But one of the tropes of this conversation is, uh, I'm starting there, I'm starting with something very basic, something small, and I'll expand out, is that the brain is like a computer. You know, anyone who has a tech background is in, in rising, you know, tech is the rising industry. It's, it's very large, very wealthy, very powerful. And thus, society, or at least the leadership, look to them. They're the leaders. They know best. They're smart. They're rich. They've earned their place in a high esteem. And thus, if they know something about, you know, and, and, and thus that expertise, that know-how, that success is transferred in other areas. Well, if they know how to fix problems with my computer, surely they know how to fix the problems of our society. At least that's how the thinking seems to go in these public conversations where one public talk after another will be some technocrat, meaning someone with a technical expertise, a STEM background, STEM is pushed rather than the humanities. We can have both. It's not like I'm putting down engineering or science or tech, but it's, it's seen as the only thing. And all these people talking about our social issues, social problems, how to fix them, how to fix this is either putting books, self-help or otherwise, and they're talking about everything like it's a computer because that's what they know. They've never, uh, and this is, this is my, this is the, I'm just asking questions. Why don't we go to sociologists to talk about social problems? You know, it, it, does, do we go to sociologists? No. Sociologists are too, too eggheaded, too, too much in the humanities, the soft science. It's soft. It's weak. Uh, not like the hard sciences, like STEM. But, you know, we'll, we'll plug in a little A for the arts because, you know, we like arts. We'll build a chip fab plant and then we'll have a f mural of flowers and, and whatever forest that was uh, bulldozed down for the uh, chip fab plant. But I digress. Even, even Obama, it's not his idea, but he's repeating this thing of like, you know, social media, the Internet. It's too much for our brains. We can't process all this information. It's too much, and we can't determine. Our brains were programmed back on the savannah to determine threats, and you'll see all these people who have an ounce of background in neurology or psychology or the social sciences because we are a social species. And when they can be treated like a heart science sometimes, you can do experiments with neurology, and there's always this tendency to want to make the social sciences like a heart science, just observable facts, just objective testing, so on, so on. But society is a matter of subject, a matter of subjectivities and intersubjectivity, which is when you have more than one, or how they interact, and that gets more complex. And you say it's messy, and no, 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 there's more to it than that, of course. But that's usually used as a hand wave, meaning I actually don't know anything about this, and I'm not interested in knowing more. What am I writing about? It was shared on my Facebook timeline 
an interview with uh, Alex Friedman. He's a guy I consider to have negative charisma. I know he has a charm to him. Uh, he does have a sense of humor, but he just has the strongest vocal fry I've ever encountered. And I find him hard to listen to. He's, he's a libertarian guy, definitely not in the same wavelength as far as visions and values and all that stuff. But he's such a centrist, uh, enlightened centrist that, you know, the most right-wing people will talk to him at least, and he'll be able to push back on how crazy they are or nuts. But he's a little nuts himself, or rather, he had someone on who talked like this. And they were like, they, they talked for five minutes. This is where I wage, rage quit the listening to it, because I was just, these guys are dumb, especially the guest. He's literally just talking over and over about what he doesn't know. Like they were talking about, um, isn't it crazy how we've only had hot showers for a century? And like, and then they were talking about like, we don't know how people bathe themselves in the past as if Roman bathhouses and all the ways people clean themselves, used rivers, all the societies and civilizations that had something akin to running water. It was always one way, of course. It was a way of getting waste away from the city. But many societies over the Middle Ages, the Renaissance era, and of course in antiquity as well. It goes all the way back to the dawn of built cities. The ability to bathe and uh, not defecate where you eat. And these guys are talking about like the rest of humanity. They're all dumb until now or even now. In fact, actually it's an argument that we're all dumb and terrible. And we need the higher consciousness. There's something wrong with us. We need to intervene either on the individual level and whatever. And again, he continually used the, uh, the pro, this is when I really turned it off. I was just, I was bumping forward to see if it got to a point. And it's like, and they started talking about our programming, our software. The software is like this. Our brains are our hardware. Let me go into this article, a little essay here and make the art kind of, my, you know, the, the argument. It's from the website Eon, or a psychology magazine at least, and it's called The Empty Brain. Your brain does not possess information, retrieve knowledge, or store memories. In short, your brain is not a computer. Now, I know this is not Albany news, okay? But I've done that in the last few episodes. Uh, it's rare that I get a, sp a spark of uh, inspiration, which happens every day, and I'm like, oh, but well, I remember to cover this topic, or I'll make a bookmark or a note to cover it, but then I'll only have an hour. And there's, oh, there's the other things too. Move forward. No matter how hard they try, brain scientists and cognitive psychologists will never find a copy of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in the brain. That's the, that's da, 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 da. Or copies of words, pictures, grammatical rules, or any other kinds of environmental stimuli. The human brain isn't really empty, of course, but it does not contain most of the things people think it does. Not even simple things, such as, quote-unquote, memories. I know this ruins so much sci-fi. Our shoddy thinking about the brain has deep historical roots. Structuralism comes in. But the invention of computers in the 1940s got us especially confused. For more than half a century now, psychologists, linguists, neuroscientists, and other experts, I'm, I'm not against expertise, on human behavior, has been asserting that the human brain works like a computer. Because it's the analogy that's closest to us, right? The, and he goes into this. 
How, to see how vacuous this idea is, consider the brains of babies. Thanks to evolution, human nanotes, nanonites, like the newborns of all other mammalian species, enter the world prepared to interact with it effectively. A baby's vision is blurry, but it pays special attention to faces and is quickly able to identify its mothers. Imprinting. It prefers the sound of voices to non-speech sounds and can distinguish one basic speech sound from another. We are, without a doubt, built to make social connections. A healthy newborn is also equipped with more than a dozen reflexes, ready-made reactions to certain stimuli that are important for its survival. It turns its head in the direction of something that brushes its cheek and then sucks whatever enters its mouth. It holds its breath when submerged in water. It grasps things placed in its... Was there an experiment to know that? <laughs> oh, boy. The implications. Well, that's something to look up, isn't it? It grasps things placed in its hands so strongly it can nearly support its own weight. Perhaps most important, newborns come equipped with powerful learning mechanisms that allow them to change, that's the tile size, rapidly, so they can interact increasingly effectively with their world, even if that world is unlike the one their distant ancestors faced. Senses, reflexes, and learning mechanisms. This is what we start with, and it is quite a lot when you think about it. If we lacked any of these capabilities at birth, we would probably have trouble surviving. But here is what we are not born with. Information, data, rules, software, knowledge, lexicons, representations, algorithms, programs, models, memories, images, processors, subroutines, encoders, decoders, symbols, or buffers. Design elements that allow digital computers to behave somewhat intelligently. Not only are we not born with such things, we also don't develop them, ever. We don't store words or rules that tell us how to manipulate them. We don't create representations of visual stimuli, store them in our short-term memory buffer, and then transfer the representation into a long-term memory device. We don't retrieve information or images or words from memory registers. Computers do all of these things, but organisms actually do not. Computers are quite literally, they quite literally process information. Numbers, letters, words, formulas, images. The information first has to be encoded into a format computers can use, which is the pattern of ones and zeros, the bits, organized into small chunks, bytes. On my computer, each byte contains eight bits, and a certain pattern of those bits stand for the letter D, another for the letter O, and another for the letter G. Side by side, those three bytes form the word dog. One single image, say the photograph of my cat Henry on my desktop, is represented by a very specific pattern of a million of these bytes, one megabyte, surrounded by some special characters that tell the computer to expect an image, not a word. Computers, quite literally, move these patterns. If you don't have them, that's why you know one kind of file can get corrupted or turns into something else, something weird. Sometimes they also copy the patterns, or sometimes they transform them in various ways, say when we are correcting errors in a manuscript or when we are touching up a photograph. The rules computers follow for moving, copying, and operating on these arrays of data are also stored inside the computer. Together, a set of rules is called a program or an algorithm, a group of algorithms that work together to help us do something, like buy stocks or date, are called an application, what most people now call an app. And to quote a sociologist I've been listening to, which is where I'm getting a lot of this rant from, 
is like, you know, we, we, everyone's flawed. Everyone's flawed. We can't do democracy, run the economy as a group. No way. Even dictators, you know, we can't even have a dictatorship or rule by minority. Even the rulers, we don't even have a ruling class. They're, they're, they're flawed too, but there's an app for that. You know, we'll have a killer app for democracy. We'll, we'll do democracy on an app instead of as a social process. Because we can't trust that. We can't trust each other. That's what the technocrats say. I'm trying to fight. I'm trying to resist that here. Let's give ourselves some tools. In this book, In Our Own Image, 2015, the artificial intelligence expert, George Sadanakris, describes six different metaphors people have employed over the past 2,000 years to try to explain human intelligence. And in the earliest one, eventually preserved in the Bible, meaning, you know, it was an oral tradition before, humans were formed from clay or dirt with an intelligent God infusing them with a spirit. That spirit explained our intelligence, grammatically at least. The invention of hydraulic engineering in the 3rd century BCE, antiquity, beginning of antiquity, the end of the first medieval age, led to the popularity of a hydraulic model for human intelligence, actually. Ancient Greeks and Romans. The idea that the flow of different fluids in the body, the humors, accounted for both our physical and mental functioning. The hydraulic metaphor persisted for more than 1,600 years, handicapping medical practice all the while. Not only changed in the Renaissance era. And what else was it developing in the Renaissance era? Clocks. By the 1500s, automata powered by springs and gears had been devised, eventually inspiring leading thinkers, such as Marais Descartes, to assert that humans are complex machines. That's where that's when it starts. In the 1600s, the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes, from where all political science in America springs for, suggested that thinking arose from small mechanical motions in the brain. By the 1700s, and thus you get the you know the little cartoon of the gears and the head as a representation of thinking. By the 1700s, day a century later, discoveries about electricity and chemistry led to new theories of human intelligence. Again, largely metaphorical in nature. By the mid 1800s, inspired by recent advances in communications, the German physicist Hermann von Helmholtz compared the brain to a telegraph. Seeing sensing a pattern here. I mean, it's the thesis of the book. Uh, another. Each metaphor reflected the most advanced thinking of the era that spawned it. Predictably, just a few years after the dawn of computer technology in the 1940s, the brain was said to operate like a computer, with the role of physical hardware played by the brain itself and our thoughts serving as software. The landmark event that launched what is now broadly called cognitive science was publication of Language of Communication in 1951 by psychologist George Miller. Miller proposed that the mental world could be studied rigorously using concepts from information theory, computation, and linguistics. And again, Chomsky. This kind of thinking was taken to its ultimate expression in the short book, The Computer and the Brain, in 1958. The mathematician John von Neumann stated flatly that the function of the human nervous system is prefacase digital, drawing parallel after parallel between the components of computing machines of today and the compu com components of the human brain. Propelled by su subsequent advances in both computer technology and brain research, an ambitious multidisciplinary effort to understand human intelligence gradually developed 
firmly rooted in the idea that humans are, like computers, information processors. This effort now involves thousands of researchers, consumes billions of dollars in funding, and has generated a vast literature consisting of both technical and mainstream articles and books. Ray Kurzweil's book, How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed, back in 2013, exemplifies this perspective, speculating about the algorithms of the brain, how the brain processes data, and even how it superficially resembles integrated circuits and structure. Though it's really just how physical forces best interact. The information processing, IP metaphor of human intelligence, now dominates human thinking. Both on the street and in the sciences, there is virtually no form of discourse about intelligent human behavior that proceeds without employing this metaphor, just as no form of discourse about human intelligent behavior could proceed in certain eras and cultures without reference to a spirit or deity. The validity of the IP metaphor, that's information processing, is today's world's is generally assumed without question, which means it's a dogma. We should question it, especially those that have the question authority bumper sticker. But the IP metaphor is, after all, just another metaphor, a story we tell to make sense of something we don't actually understand. And like all the metaphors that preceded it, it will certainly be cast aside at some point, either replaced by another metaphor or in the end actually replaced by actual knowledge. Which is how we, um, like, good science educators would talk about how we actually don't know a lot. When it comes to neoliberal, neoconservatism, post-liberalism, typified by the phrase, you know, there is no alternative. We're at the end of history, after the end of the Cold War. End of history, we've, this is as good as it gets. We can only make slight improvements, incremental change here and there. Everything is as it mostly should be. It's just these little flaws, just little flaws, and, and, and the great assumption is everything's working. I mean, everything is working perfectly. The markets, the economy, but things aren't right. So there must be something wrong. Well, it can't be, can't be the laws. And it can't be the regulations. And it can't be the structure of the economy. No, no, no. No, it must be you. It must be at the individual level. Buy a self-help book. <laughs> or we need to craft a way of governing that completely ignores the popular will and will vilify populism along the way. Just so no one gets that, even gets the sense that maybe this is all wrong. But it's all good for you. That, that's another line. Back to this. Just over a year ago, on a visit to one of the world's most prodigious research institutes, I challenged researchers there to account for human, intelligent human behavior without reference to any aspect of the IP metaphor. And they just couldn't do it. And when I politely raised the issue in subsequent email comms, emails, they still had nothing to offer months later. And they had time to think about it. They saw the problem. They didn't dismiss the challenge as trivial, but they couldn't offer an alternative. In other words, the IP metaphor is sticky. It encumbers our thinking with language and ideas that are so powerful, we have trouble thinking around them. The faulty logic of the IP metaphor is easy enough to state. It is based on a faulty syllogism. One with two reasonable premises and a faulty conclusion. A syllogism is like a logical path. You know, if you, if you passed algebra in high school, uh, you know, you have 
Um, so you have two reasonable premises. You know, you make two assumptions that are reasonable and probably true. I mean, they're, they're self-evident in a way. We call them that. But then you make a faulty conclusion. Premise one is all computers are capable of behaving intelligently, at least on a basic level. Premise two, all computers are information processors. Faulty conclusion, all entities that are capable of behaving intelligently are information processors. Setting aside the formal language, the idea that humans must be information processors just because computers can or are, are is just plain silly. And when someday the IP metaphor is finally abandoned, it will almost certainly be seen that way by historians, just as we now view the hydraulic or mechanical metaphors to also be silly. We do not actually have a little little gear in our head. And, uh, and, and our health and our uh, mind thinking is not just... We do have fluids moving around us, of course, but they're not like how it all works. <laughs> or it is, but it's, it's not a explanatory. I can't explain why someone has cancer just because of what fluid they're excreting. That's how it used to work. If the IP metaphor is so silly, then why is it so sticky? What is stopping us from, like maple syrup? What is stopping us from brushing it aside, just as we might brush aside a branch that is blocking our path? Is it a way to understand human intelligence without leaning on a flimsy intellectual crutch? And what price have we paid for leaning so heavily on this particular crutch for so long? The IP metaphor, after all, has been guiding the writing and thinking of a large number of researchers in multiple fields for decades. At what cost? Well, in the classroom. In a classroom exercise I have conducted many times over the years, I begin by recruiting a student to draw a detailed picture of a dollar bill as detailed as possible, I say, on the blackboard in front of the room. When the student is finished, I cover the drawing with a sheet of paper, remove a dollar bill from my wallet, tape it to the board, and ask the student to repeat the task. When he or she is done, I remove the cover from the first drawing, and the class comments on the differences. Because you might never seen a demonstration like this, or because you might have trouble imagining the outcome, I've asked Jimmy Hugh, one of the student interns at the institute where I conduct my research, to make the two drawings. Here is her drawing from memory. Notice the metaphor. So it's a simple rectangle. Ones are in the corners, just, just a one. One dollar in plain text with a circle with a rough George Washington, but looking to the left with God, in God we trust, uh, written in plain text on the bottom. That's all I can remember. And here is the drawing that she uh, next made with the dollar bill present, and it's the fully detailed, fleshed out one dollar bill because it has all of those other numbers on it all the stamps and the logos from the treasury to point out the, the ones are different sizes and they're in different uh, circle, size circles. Two, three of them are in ovals. And the one in actually the top right is actually in a more of a square with leaves kind of symbol uh, box. Uh, Federal Reserve note is at the top. United States of America is also written under the top. Washington is not just in an oval, but more of like a kind of a vase kind of shape. He's looking to the right and in God We Trust is at the very, it's not like written in large thing, it's actually just a little tiny little ribbon at the bottom of George. Ginny was as surprised by the outcome as you probably are, but is typical. As you can see, the drawing made in the absence of the dollar bill is horrible compared to the drawing made from an actual example, even though Ginny has seen a dollar bill thousands of times. But now we're probably putting any effort in remembering what's on it, memorizing it. What is the problem? 
Don't we have a representation of the dollar bill stored in our memory register in our brains? Can't we just retrieve it? Lots of air quotes here. And it, and to use it to make our drawing? Obviously not. And a thousand years of neuroscience will never locate a representation of a dollar bill stored inside the human brain for the simple reason that it's not there to be found. A wealth of brain studies tell us, in fact, that multiple and sometimes large areas of the brain are often involved in even the most mundane memory tasks. When strong emotions are involved, millions of neurons can become active. And thus, that's the, you know, the act of brain scanning and how certain the new neural technologies of like we can monitor people's brain states and all that. This works because so much of the brain lights up whenever you just do something. In fact, the, the, the myth that continues, I mean, I don't think it's being used anymore, but even like five years ago, you had the movie Lucy, and it still maybe happens. Some, uh, you might hear it's like, oh, we're only using 10% of our brains. Well, you're only using 10% at any one time, but you're always using all of it, like all the time, actually. It's only maybe 10% that's like really active. <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so dumb to repeat that now. If, if it ever, I mean, it, it was a dumb idea to begin with. Like, what do you mean you're only using 10%? I mean, it doesn't feel like you're only using 10% when you have a headache. Why is all of it hurt? <laughs> okay. In a 2016 study of survivors of a plane crash by the University of Toronto neuropsychologist Brian Levine, I think he's written a few books too, and others, recalling the crash increased neural activity in the amygdala, medical medial temporal lobe, and you know, lists a bunch of brain, parts of the brain. The idea advanced by several scientists that specific memories are somehow stored in individual neurons is preposterous. If anything, that assertion just pushes the problem of memory to an even more challenging level. How and where, after all, is the memory stored in the cell? It's all just cells, after all. So what is occurring when Ginny draws the dollar bill in its absence? If Ginny had never seen a dollar bill before, her first drawing would probably have not resembled the second drawing at all. Having seen dollar bills before, she was changed in some ways. Specifically, her brain was changed in a way that allowed her to visualize a dollar bill, that is, to re-experiencing a dollar bill at least to some extent. The difference between the two diagrams reminds us that visualizing something, that is, seeing something in its absence, is far less accurate than seeing something in its presence. This is why we're much better at recognizing than recalling. When we remember something, because uh, the Latin root for that is again, we have to try to relive an experience. But when we recognize something, we must merely be conscious of the fact that we have had this perceptual experience before. You know, you can say, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, uh, you, seeing that reminded me of that. And I was trying to think of it, or maybe I wasn't thinking of it at all. Perhaps you will object to this demonstration. Ginny had seen dollar bills before, but she hadn't made a deliberate effort to memorize the details. My point. Had she done so, you might argue, she could presumably have drawn a second image without the bill being present. Even in this case, though, no image of the dollar bill has in any sense been stored in Ginny's brain. She has simply become better prepared to draw it accurately, just as through practice a pianist becomes more skilled in playing a concerto without somehow inhaling a copy of the sheet music. From... This simple exercise, we can begin to build the framework of a metaphor-free theory of human intelligent behavior, one in which the brain isn't completely empty, but it is at least empty of the baggage of 
information processing metaphors. As we navigate through the world, we are changed by a variety of experiences. Of special note are experiences of three types. We observe what is happening around us. This is others' behavior, sound, instructions, words, and images. We are exposed, number two is, we are exposed to the pairing of an unimportant stimuli, such as sirens, with important stimuli, such as the appearance of police cars. And three, we are punished or rewarded for behaving in certain ways. We become more effective in our lives if we change in ways that are consistent with these experiences. If we can now recite a poem or sing a song, we are able to follow the instructions we are given. We, are, we will respond to the unimportant stimuli more like we do to the important ones. If we refrain from behaving in ways that were punished, we'll behave more frequently in ways that were rewarded. Misleading headlines notwithstanding, no one really has the slightest idea how the brain changes after we have learned to sing a song or recite a poem. But neither the song nor the poem have been stored in it. The brain has simply changed in an orderly way that now allows us to sing the song or recite the poem under certain conditions. When called on to perform, neither the song nor the poem is in any sense retrieved from anywhere in the brain any more than my finger movements are retrieved when I tap my finger on my desk. We simply sing or recite. No retrieval is necessary. A few years ago, I asked the neuroscientist Eric Kendall of Columbia, winner of a Nobel Prize, for identifying some of the chemical changes that take place in between neural saps, synapses of the alapsa, which is a marine snail. I guess, you know, you go to the really basics of a neuro, uh, neural network. Um, after it learns something. And so, it was, okay, there was, he knows chemical changes that take place after the snail learns something. How long, he thought, it would take us to understand how human memory works. He quickly replied, a hundred years. I didn't think to ask him whether he thought the IP metaphor was slowing down neuroscience, but some neuroscientists are indeed beginning to think the unthinkable, that the metaphor is not indispensable. A few kind of scientists, notably Anthony Clamerio of the University of Cincinnati, author of The Radical Embodied Cognitive Science, published in 2009, now completely rejects the view of the human brain working like a computer. The mainstream view is that we, like computers, make sense of the world by performing computations on mental representations of it. But Camario and others describe another way of understanding intelligent behavior as a direct interaction between organisms and their world. Sounds pretty simple, right? My favorite example of the dramatic difference between the IP perspective and what some now call the anti-representational view of human functioning involves two different ways of explaining how a baseball player manages to catch a fly ball. Beautifully explained by Michael McBerth, now at Arizona State University, and his colleagues in a 1995 paper in Science. The IP perspective requires a player to formulate an estimate of various initial conditions of the ball's flight, the force of the impact, the angle of the trajectory, that kind of thing. Then, to create and analyze an internal model of the path along which the path will likely move, then use that to model to guide and adjust motor movements continuously in time in order to intercept the ball. That is all well and good if we function as computers do, because it's, you know, it's, all those processes make it seem like we're calculating, right? But McBriff and his colleagues gave a simpler account. To catch the ball, 
The player simply needs to keep moving in a way that keeps the ball in a constant visual relationship with respect to home plate and the surrounding scenery, technically in a linear optical trajectory. This might sound complicated, but it is actually incredibly simple and completely free of computations, representations, and algorithms. Yes, how we actually catch a ball, or in my case, hit a ball with a racket in tennis. I'm a tennis player. We're not making a calculation. We're making a bunch of assumptions based on experience. And the more experience you have, the better you get, because you've seen that ball move towards you, and you keep your eye on the ball, right? It's a direct interaction. And you've seen that ball bounce on that court 10,000 times, seen it bounce, and you can make an assumption, a snap judgment. It's not a calculation. It's a direct interaction. So I really like it. Makes sense to me. And I don't like thinking of myself as a computer. Rather, I've seen how this metaphor is used by people who mean well, but are, in fact, rather, in practice, tyrants. Two determined psychology professors at Leeds Beckett University in the UK, Andrew Wilson and Sabrina Goloka, include the baseball example among many others that can be looked at simply and sensibly outside the IP framework. They have been blogging for years about what they call a more coherent, naturalized approach to the scientific study of human behavior, at odds with the dominant cognitive neuroscience approach. This is far from a movement, however. The mainstream cognitive sciences continue to wallow uncritically in the IP metaphor, and some of the world's most influential thinkers have made grand predictions about humanity's future that depend on the validity of the metaphor. So notice they're not working off of actual reality or evidence, but that we need to, um, they're starting with this assumption based on a bunch of the metaphors that, that the, uh, when this science was starting to, to form in the first place, which is like saying, you know, capitalism formed with slave economies and it doesn't have them anymore. It can work without slave economies. Maybe neurology can work without computer metaphors. <laughs> oh, that's not forced. One prediction made by the futurist Kurzweil and the physicist Stephen Hawking, maybe you've heard of him, and the neuroscientist Randall Cohen, among others, is that because human consciousness is supposedly like computer software, it will soon be possible to download human minds to a computer in the circuits of which we will become immensely powerful intellectually quite possibly immortal. Ooh. This concept drove the plot of the dystopian movie Transcendence in 2014, which starred Johnny Depp. Never saw it. As a cursed wildlife scientist whose mind was downloaded to the internet with disastrous results. For I remember the movie. I didn't see it. Fortunately, because the IP metaphor is not even slightly valid, keep that in mind, we will never have to worry about a human mind going amok in cyberspace. Alas, I know, all the, all the sci-fi stories are ruined now. We will never achieve immortality through downloading. This is not only because of the absence of consciousness software in the brain. There is a deeper problem here. Let's call it the uniqueness problem, which is the most inspirational, but also maybe depressing. 
Because neither memory banks nor representations of stimuli exist in the brain, and because all of that is required for us to function in the world is for the brain to change in an orderly way as a result of our experiences, there is no reason to believe that any two of us are changed the same way by the same experience. If you and I attend the same concert, the changes that occur in my brain when I listen to Beethoven's Fifth will almost certainly be completely different from the changes that occur in yours. Those changes, whatever they are, are built on the unique neural structure that already exists, each structure having developed over a lifetime. And, of course, it also breaks maybe dualism and the whole, you know, my memories can live on after me. He doesn't, this, this article doesn't touch that, uh, neither will I. I mean, not intentionally. It's not the right context. This is why, as Sir Frederick Bartlett demonstrated in his book, Remembering, 1932, no two people repeat a story they have heard the same way and why over time. Their recitations of the story will diverge more and more. No copy of the story is ever made. Rather, each individual, upon hearing the story, changes to some extent, enough so that when asked about the story later, in some cases days, months, or years after Bartlett first read them the story, they can re-experience hearing the story to some extent, although not very well. See that first dollar bill example. This is inspirational, I suppose, because it means that each of us is truly unique, not just in our genetic makeup, but even in the way our brains change over time. It's also depressing because it makes the task of the neuroscientist daunting, almost beyond imagination. Well, depressing if you're a neuroscientist, right? Or you want an understanding of the human brain that's kind of complete. But for any given experience, orderly change could involve a thousand neurons, a million neurons, or even an entire brain with the pattern of change different in each one. Worse still, if you think of it as a bad thing. Even if we have the ability to take a snapshot of all the brain's 86 billion neurons and then to stimulate the state of those neurons in a computer, that vast pattern would mean nothing outside the body of the brain that produced it. This is perhaps the most, in the same way, like you can have the pattern of an image, but if you put it into a Word document, you just get, you get what? You get gibberish. You get just le random letters, right? This is perhaps the most egregious way in which the IP metaphor has distorted our thinking with, about human functioning. Where computers do store exact copies of data, copies that can persist unchanged for long periods of time, even if the power has been turned off, the brain maintains our in intellect only as long as it remains alive. Talking about our brains. There is no on-off switch. Either the brain keeps functioning or we disappear. What's more, as the neurobiologist Stephen Rose pointed out in The Future of the Brain, 2005, a snapshot of the brain's current state might also be meaningless unless we know the entire life history of that brain, perhaps even about the social context in which that brain was, or the person was raised. Think how difficult this problem is. To understand even the basics of how the brain maintains a human intellect, we might need to know not just the current state of all 86 billion neurons and their 100 trillion connections, not just the varying strengths with which they're connected. You know, some are connected really strongly with, you know, that's how addictions are formed. And not just those states, uh, the states of more than a 1,000 proteins that exist at each connection point, but how the moment-to-moment -moment activity of the brain co contributes to the integrity of the system. 
Add to this the uniqueness of each brain, brought about in part because of the uniqueness of each person's life history. And Candle's prediction of, of understanding the brain in 100 years starts to sound really overly optimistic. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times, the neuroscientist Kenneth Miller suggested it will take centuries just to figure out basic neural connectivity. Our neurons connect together. Meanwhile, vast sums of money are being raised for brain research, based in some cases on faulty ideas and, and promises, because this money is maybe venture capital? Promises that cannot be kept. Like the kind of promises made by Neuralink, or the promises made by technocrats, making the, the next app to fix society's problems. Because after all, society, it's like a computer. <laughs> and, and, and it's people who are wrong. So anyway, um, I'll go through the examples I just want to keep in my head. Almost at the end here. The most blatant instance of neuroscience gone awry, documented recently in a report in Scientific American, concerns the 1.3 billion human brain project launched by the European Union in 2013. Convinced by the charismatic Henry Markham that he could create a simulation of the entire human brain on a supercomputer by the year 2023. Over there. And that such a model would revolutionize the treatment of Alzheimer's disease and other disorders. EU officials funded his project with virtually no restrictions. Less than two years into it, the project turned into a brain wreck, a train wreck. And Markham was asked to step down. We are organisms, not computers. Get over it. Let's get on with the business of trying to understand ourselves, but without being encumbered by unnecessary intellectual baggage. The IP metaphor of information processing has had a half-century run, producing few, if any, insights along the way, although it's made quite a lot of profiteers. <laughs> the time has come to hit the delete key. Okay, okay. So let's see who actually wrote this. I thought there was, was there a name? I didn't see a name. Oh, let's see. okay, there we go. Written by a Robert Epstein, senior research psychologist at the American Institute for Behavioral Research and Tech in Cali. And he's the author of 15 books. That's how I know I could trust him. Don't trust anyone who's only written three books. Trust the people who have written more than 10 books. <laughs> and the former editor-in-chief of Psychology Today. Okay, so he's he's an editor, a former editor of Psychology Today, which is actually the pop psychology uh, magazine, which is always very optimistic and, you know, it's very happy-go-lucky. We, can, we, we understand. And here's the latest uh, neuroscience to help you on your day. And interesting, he would, he would come up with, uh, with this topic to write about. So I really enjoyed reading that as I enjoyed reading it the first time because it really gave flesh to scant thoughts and frustrations that I've had with various attitudes and, and uh, dogmas and how we, uh, it seems like conversations, public conversations are stuck in certain modes that are very, uh, in mind tunnels. And, and this is a certain mind tunnel, thinking of people as being flawed, not our structures, not our societal structures, our our institutions, which you know it's we can we can point to all the ways it's systemically racist. 
But if you think it's the people who are flawed and it starts in the home and it's not, no, 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 we don't have systemic racism. Police departments aren't corrupt by default, you know, because they're just meant to throw people out of houses and protect property and not really the social contract, so to speak. They can prevent some violence, but not really. There's these underlying assumptions kind of in those conversations that never get challenged. Challenges like we're the flawed ones. We can't trust the people with decision-making power. They don't have the time or the education. Well, why don't we educate everyone? Oh, we can't afford that. Why not? Oh, because we're all flawed and, and it's not for everyone anyway. Some people are just not cut out for getting a humanities education. They should just fix cars and be happy with the good salary they get. And maybe that's enough for some. But then a societal problem comes along and all everyone has to do is say how stupid everybody is. And I don't know, why can't they do things right? They have no understanding whatsoever. And woe is the critique that can condemn but not also understand. And you know, it doesn't mean you can't blame people. But you got to also understand why. And too often, in many conversations, family and friends, I'm like, well, let's try to understand why this terrible thing happened, why this person killed this other person, whatever, drug dealer. I'm like, I want to understand. I can condemn it, and I can, but I also want to understand it. And I'm constantly told, why are you taking their side, Dan? You know, it's like, maybe I just don't want to kill people. <laughs> I don't think people should die for this. So I don't think uh, condemning only is solving the problem and saying, oh, it's, the, it's just that individual's problem. Which is because, why? Because I, you know, following the golden rule, if it can happen to someone else and they can just be blamed and say something happened, they were raised right. That could happen to me. I mess up and no one will go after, well, the circumstances of my messing up, which could have very major co contribution. And they'll say, oh, it's just Dan Platt wasn't raised right. It must have been his parents. Something went wrong along the way. He needs extra training. Or something of that nature. No, it's not just the training. Training's good. But uh, he just needs to be, we, he, like everyone else, needs to be managed. Because we can't, we're all flawed. And uh, so here's an example. Truck driver having taken on a 20-hour job, and driving 20 hours straight, falls asleep and kills uh, another driver. The driver is blamed for this. And the technical solution proposed is a hat that uh, can scan their brain, and if they fall asleep, they're shocked into being awake again. The truckers themselves, outraged, will likely will of course point out there's systemic problems in their industry. They're underpaid, and they have to take these long haul drop jobs. They don't have a choice in the matter, economically speaking. They, you know, could have more scheduled break stops. They could be allowed to actually stop and take a nap, an hour nap, or something like that. No, they're pressured uh, to do that 20 hours straight. And, and, so, and so many other factors, right? That could be solved with worker self-management or worker ownership, which leads, hopefully leads to some worker self-management. Beware of, of stories of worker ownership, but without any worker management. I know it's sort of assumed that they're together, but that's not always a result if it's top down. Not that one is good without the other. I've covered this in past episodes of the three less. But I want to wrap up. 
with the need to resist these particular mind tunnels. The brain is like a machine. People are wrong. Take it or leave it. Let the experts decide, even though the experts don't actually have the right expertise. It's not that I'm against expertise. I love it. I consider myself to have expertise. But I'm not going to speak or want to make decisions on things I haven't done the research on. But you have experts who, along with trying to do its best, are also trying to not rock any boat, to disrupt as little as possible. And that means doing very, very little. And thus, that leads to really bland options or one option and saying to the public, yes or no. And you have the types of reactions you get are, we're outraged this is the only option, but we'll take it. Or we'll, um, or, or, the, or it's a yes or no, where the no's are like, well, I want another option. There's better options. And then you have the yeas where it's like, well, we like part of this, but we obviously want more. But the no's are like, well, just don't do it. This is what's occurred with, um, at least online, with the revamp or the renovation of Lark Street, where very little is going to change. No bike lane, no expansion of sidewalk, because the sidewalks are not, they're pretty narrow at times, especially for the amount of foot traffic that we really have. There's the on-street parking, and there's fights over, you know, well, you take parking away, it'll, it'll ruin the businesses. No data backs this up anywhere. I gotta make that clear. No data backs that up. You've taken away on street parking. More people are walking. They actually get more customers. Okay, I'm actually out of time. So that's this week's show. Please contact me and leave feedback. I'm also looking for anyone who wants to join me, whether it's as a one-time guest or as someone to actually do the show with, to keep me on tack. And uh, and we'll talk Albany Albany news. Um, and it's not just heady topics anymore, so I'm hoping more people could uh, fill this role. Um, but if you have any other uh, feedback, you want to suggest topics, or join me on the program, use my socials on Facebook, Twitter, Macedon, which can be found, uh, which you do a search for What's Left in Albany slash Three Left Show. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at just Dan J. Platt with a capital P. Also TikTok, but I haven't produced anything there. Haven't even tried it, but it's always on my mind to do these little rants in TikTok form. So then I do the news here. Not how it works out. Uh, maybe in the summertime when the weather's nice. I was thinking about it like at certain times when I get out of work, but then the weather's not great or there's a lot of people and it's just I, maybe it's just performing in public, even though it's just for the phone. I don't. I don't want. I'm so self-conscious about it. Not like these young people. So anyway, um, the website I have is www.3lefts.news, uh, the three with a uh, numeral, which contains shows, uh, which contains show notes and the archive of all episodes for both of my programs. The Three Left Show is my leftist theory show where I discuss strategies, practice, and practice for a left for itself. I want to wish, otherwise I want to wish all well, encourage all listening to devote them some time every week to a collective or community project as we discover what is actually left in Albany. Thank you very much, folks. Your brain is a creative computer. All the answers to life are 